This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Going through and cleaning up munitions and, um, you know, doing the explosive ordnance disposal, that all comes out as a result of a lot of the UN's work. Hi, and welcome to the EM Weekly Show, your emergency management podcast. Today, we are talking to Kyle King about a unique idea using emergency managers to build capacity uh, in post-conflict nations. Kyle has been working on that kind of concept in Kosovo over the last few years. Hey, in two weeks, we'll be in the Phoenix area for the Emergency Management Leaders Conference, the EMLC. And come by and visit us at the Titan HST Mobile Studio. Meet some of our guests, and, and you can also, you know, maybe ask a question live on the radio. Now on to the interview. Hey, Kyle, welcome to the Ian Weekly Show. Thank you for having me. Hey, Kyle, how did you get involved in emergency management? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Kyle King. I am the Managing Director of Capacity Building International. Um, and we are just basically a small uh, kind of boutique consultancy. We work internationally, and our main focus areas are in post-conflict operations and stabilization uh, and those types of environments. And my personal background started with the uh, Department of Defense Emergency Services, where I spent about 16, 17 years uh, through the DOD Fire and Emergency Services and worked my way up to Assistant Chief of Operations and Training. Uh, but what was unique about that was that I actually spent about seven years in Bosnia with Stabilization Force, uh, two and a half years in Afghanistan, in, in the Kabul region, and then also most recently, almost about 10 years in Kosovo with NATO. And so my personal experience has been through the operations side, but then actually working with the post-conflict crisis management, emergency management spectrum uh, internationally. So Kyle, tell me a little bit um, about some of the challenges that you had with your program. So we, we focus internationally, um, and one of our main areas right now that we look at is basically the optic or the lens of how we can use emergency management to help with post-conflict stabilization and operations and in order to rebuild societies after conflict. And that's one of the things that we really focused on, which is why I'm happy to be having this conversation because this is not something that we talk about very much. So, Kyle, some of the things we've been talking about um, and some of the exciting stuff is, is some of your programs that you're doing. And I'm, I'm excited about the education side of it. What do you think um, the role of emergency management can be in, in helping out with reestablishing society in those war-torn countries? Well, that, that's a great question. And so one of the things that this is one of the reasons why we want to have this type of conversation and, and start this conversation was because from my experience of working in Bosnia, Afghanistan and Kosovo, emergency management plays a really key role in, in, in looking at society, rebuilding society. So if you take the overall assumption that all the security sector, the police, the courts, the fire and emergency services, the pre-hospital care, all of that has been degraded or demolished after a conflict. 
And so from an emergency management perspective and from that optic, you know, you can look at society and knowing everything that we know now and everything out of the United States and all the lessons learned, being able to go forth and start a program from the bottom up and knowing the importance of things like interagency cooperation and being able to put that foot forward first and through the emergency management perspective, rebuild these, these pillars of society that people need to function. And especially in terms of community preparedness, and, and other aspects. And we can build that from the bottom up and start recreating uh, a society that's more resilient uh, than what it was previously. And so I think emergency management plays a, plays a really key role. And we do that through, we have a, a portfolio basically of four pieces. We look at from an educational perspective, experiential learning, uh, a development portfolio where we work with a lot of institutions in other countries, and then also from an experimentation portfolio where we work with uh, institutions in the United States or in Europe, and we try and test different projects to see how they work and how they can help society develop. So if uh, somebody who's going to, to go there to, to work with you guys, to learn from you guys, what do they get out of, of the uh, experience? Well, one of the things that we, it, it's a significant challenge for us because a lot of the EM community is driven by what's happening in the United States. And so bringing somebody over to work with us to look at what we're doing and how we rebuild societies, the first thing they're going to realize is that, you know, a lot of these major instruments and tools that we use in the United States to deal with crisis, to deal with um, disaster recoveries, just are not present. And so you have to be able to have a fundamental core, basic level understanding. And, 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 and I mean it in such a way that you have to be the technical expert in order to be able to dumb down the things to the most basic essential core blocks that you need to be able to move a society forward. So when you're going internationally and you're working with these different programs, you're going to face challenges such as, you know, what works in the U.S. naturally doesn't work everywhere. There's the society issues, the cultural issues, the legal issues of trying to make these things happen. Um, the international guidelines are often missing. So what works best? How do you, can you fit what's happening with the United Nations or the, the assistance mechanisms from the EU or the emergency planning processes with NATO? How can you merge these together with the host nation and what they're currently working on and the strategic objectives they want to achieve to try and build a community and, and more resilient society? And so some of the things that, and one that, what I believe is one of the the biggest learning points about this and one of the, the biggest advantages is the fact that you start to open your eyes to this entirely unique cultural perspective, cultural intelligence piece to where you start to understand the fundamental building blocks of what it takes as an emergency manager, what components and where they are, and then how, how they play a role in overall society beyond just the technical pieces. So everything is, is really quite quite regulated and quite formal in the United States. But when you take all of that away and you, we also, we often make assumptions about a lot of the tools and mechanisms that are there. Uh, for instance, the use of insurance as, as a mechanism for, for risk management. Insurance doesn't exist in a lot of these places. And so what do you do when insurance is not there? What do you do uh, with, with all these different types of tools and things that we're accustomed to? And in that way, going abroad, learning these things abroad, actually builds your perspective and portfolio and, and to be able to understand how the society and pieces fit together. So some of the challenges that you have now from what I'm hearing is that you're going into these locations and there's some cultural differences, there's political differences, obviously. 
And now you're walking in saying, this is how we use the principles to, to fix your country. Has there been um, a lot of pushback on that or have people really appreciated um, some of the concepts that you're bringing to them? Well, to be honest, and we can drill down into that just a little bit. I'll use an example from when I was in Afghanistan and, and in these types of environments, there's so much aid funding that's going in in so many different programs. Uh, in one case we had, uh, I think, yeah, so $264 million were being spent towards the, towards buying fire apparatus for the Kabul region. And we were sitting in a workshop with some of the local leaders. And the one of the questions I asked is, okay, you've got these new fire trucks now. Where would you put them within the city of Kabul? Where are your hazards? What is, what are your, what is your thought process in, in going through this and, and getting all of this new equipment? And he basically pointed to a small village outside Kabul and said, I would put them there. And I asked why. And he, basically, and he said, well, that's where I live. So, and that's where my family is. And so you, you start to see and understand that their perspective and the, the cultural aspects and what they have learned is driving their decision-making process. So then you have to walk them towards, let's just say, the norms and the principles to be able to get them to go through that process of, okay, but is that the best use of that equipment? Is this the best policy to be implementing? And then what is your thought process to be able to, you know, where do you see the biggest hazards in some of your city? And so the challenges are really in, in threefold. And, and it's dealing with the host nation perspective and getting them to understand the principles and the place of these principles in a, in a larger process. Number two, getting the international community that's there. So NATO, EU, UN, OSCE, all these major international organizations. Uh, to align with the effort to implement emergency management as a stabilization tool and because that's often not really represented in their current donation programs and schemes. And then the third piece, if it's not at the international level, the individual bilateral donors, the, the ones that are in the country doing the work, um, getting them to understand the role of emergency management. And so if you're, in that position and you're working internationally, you end up pulling on all these different types of strings and programs to put things together uh, to try and, and, and build a, a, that type of more resilient society and get these programs started. And so there's, there's multifaceted challenges all the way, all the way around. How, how does the international community define resiliency? Well, that's a great question. I think that the def definition of resilience is, is constantly changing. Um, so we've seen just the, the use of resilience as a term has just increased exponentially over the last three years. Uh, and so we have resilience as far as what we're seeing from, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation and from what we're seeing in, in UN disaster risk reduction and sustainable, de sustainable development goals. We've seen resilience start to pick up with the terminology linking it to countering violent extremism. And so I, we're starting to see resilience used as a single word, a type of buzzword that is being blanketed across all initiatives uh, and it's being used that way mostly and because it's appealing it's an appealing term it's trendy and that's where a lot of people are putting their focus on at the moment and so finding a single definition that's governing all these different organizations does not really exist uh, nato has a definition which is just targeting more uh, say a defense aspect the un with the sustainable development goals the EU has a mechanism or a definition of resilience. And so it's very, very difficult to find a single 
um, definition of resilience that appeals and meets everybody's needs. That's so, that's so true. You know, we, uh, we tend to, in the United States, and right now with this concept of the 100 resilient cities, is we dig down into the, uh, the granular level, into the, into the neighborhoods of getting each an individual person understanding what it is and, and uh, trying to be ready. Um, but it seems like in the, in the case of what you're talking about, it's more of a broader uh, stroke of, of what resilience is. Is that, am I reading that right or am I, am I kind of off on that? No, that's largely true. It's, there's a, it, it's, um, unfortunately, I think in the international community, what it is, it's more of a catch-all phrase for a lot of programs. There are some focused programs that look at um, building resilient societies, but it's often linked to, say, what the UN is doing with their sustainable, sustainable development goals and disaster risk reduction platform. Um, and then there's building resilience in terms of what NATO is looking at in terms of defense and creating stability on the outer edges of the alliance. Um, and so there's aspects with that as well, but they all take different contexts. And, and that context is built upon what all of these different nations agree on. So resilience for NATO is based on the agreed consensus of 29 nations. And the UN is based on all the different nations and what they approve as a definition. And so it does, you're absolutely correct, it does. It has this broad stroking concept about what a national resilience program looks like uh, at the same time uh, that is, that is causing us challenges when we drill down to what does that technically mean, like you're doing with resilient cities, and then trying to, for lack of better words, impose that idea on top of a, a, another nation and a city and a culture about what they should be doing about resilience. If we start bringing in um, international emergency managers, say from you know, Australia, Canada, United States, um, you know, like that, is there a chance that the governments will will push back on what we think is what we should be doing as to create resilient communities and disaster ready or and rebuilding communities after they've been uh, torn by uh, by conflict or or are they going to be receptive to what we're what our concepts are of of building societies no i don't think there's going to be any real pushback i think one of the challenges is that every organization is driven by their own objectives. And so if we have an objective of implementing emergency management or using emergency management to move towards sustainable development and building you know, more resilient communities, in our view of resiliency and, and getting the host nation to, to view that as well, what we end up doing is that may or may not be on the radar or on the three-year plan or on the objectives of what those international organizations are doing. So for example, most of these organizations uh, are running on a three-year project cycle. So they'll identify goals, which run three years, uh, and that might be on education, might be on rule of law, or might be on community policing, and they'll focus on those programs for three years, and that's their focus. And so moving away from that is often very generally difficult. So. It's not that they're not going to agree. It's not that they're going to, to disagree with the initiative to work on emergency management and, and, and those types of aspects, but it, where does it fit in the larger scheme of all these different lines of development? And then in that case, where, what drives that funding and what drives that component? And this has been one of the challenges 
for me personally and working in the societies is trying to put emergency management forward as a tool to measure and look at stability. And it doesn't often, it doesn't fit into the normal construct of what the international community does. So they often focus on the large pillars of society, which of course are needed. Uh, so that's education, that's rule of law, that's democracy, that's voting, that's all these different pillars of society that need to be built. Uh, but at the same time, at some point, you have to get to where you have to start talking interagency response. You have to start talking about national response planning. And then that's when we start to see there's some very um, specific moments in time where you start having conflicts and are difficulty trying to work on those because there's no real program to address that. So is there a need? Is there a space? In my opinion, yes, definitely. I've, I've lived through that. Um, does it conflict? It, it doesn't necessarily conflict, but it may not align with their longer-term objectives. And so to be successful in that, it would take a, a wider conversation with some of these international actors to see how to bring things to bear accordingly. I, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking about on the recovery side of things and the ideas of land use, zoning, you know, sustainable building, UD, using uh, you know, lead architecture uh, standards, uh, things like that that we're really pushing for here and using. Um, in Canada and the United States, Mexico too, for that matter. Um, and how would somebody in, say, Afghanistan who just wants a house, you know, or, or whatever, how, how do they, uh, or Syria, for instance, like what's going on over there, if we say we got in there and we're able to help, um, how, how do we use those standards there on, on rebuilding? Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors. If you are on the fence about attending the Emergency Management Leaders Conference this year, you know what? It's time to act. EM Weekly has secured a discount for the EM Weekly listener. It's EMLC-19-EM Weekly. That's capital E, that's capital N, that's capital W. And so it's EMLC-19-EM Weekly. Go to emlc.us and I will see you there. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here. So please reach out to them. Tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. How, how do we use those standards there on, on rebuilding? Well, we often have a saying that when we try and, and work in international development programs or things like this, we first have to look at the host nation and see what they actually have and what's been in place, what was in place before the conflict and, and what was working well. One of the most difficult things to do is to kind of push everything off the table and put down a, you know, the codes and, and building codes and standards on the, on the table and say, this is what you need to do. Um, that, that really never sticks uh, for, for many different reasons. But so looking at what they had before and assessing what that is, looking regionally to see what fits, you know, so in, in the case of, of what you're using with Af Afghanistan, maybe the U.S. isn't the best model, but you know, you should have somebody smart enough on the ground that would say, okay, what are they doing in Pakistan, for example, if that's any better or not. 
Um, because then also that helps with translation, that helps with the cultural aspect, and that helps with, you know, getting things moving through just a lot faster. Um, at the same time, in the, in the recovery efforts, there's an aspect of, you know, just timing. Timing and their ambition to, as a community, they're, they're not going to care about sprinkler systems. <laughs> you know, um, it's just nothing that they're really going to be concerned about because it's not on that, you know, hierarchy of needs for them. And so the emergency managers that are that should be working in these types of societies or in these types of environments should be cognizant and aware of where that next level of security is. And maybe it's not a full set of codes and standards for buildings. But so we have to accept that. So then what is maybe the next level up that we can get to? So it's progressive steps towards sustainable development that we look at, but all through that context of, of emergency management. I uh, interviewed a gentleman who did a, uh, a documentary called the Disaster Capitalism, and he goes into some of the areas that have been really hard hit by disasters, some man-made and some, uh, some natural, such as Haiti. And uh, some of the issues that they have with getting in and getting access, are you guys having any issues with getting access to where you need to go? Okay, that's a, that's a really good question, so I'll need to clarify here. Immediately post-conflict or, or directly in these kind of conflict areas. Now, if you're talking about an area like, like Afghanistan or an area like, um, you know, Syria and these places, you know, obviously you're going to have an issue with access. There's obviously a, a high threat to security. You know, I don't recommend going to those places. The areas that we function in are what we call basically post-conflict plus about 10 years. So it's the point where the security situation is stabilized enough that people can turn their focus towards development. Uh, and when that happens, then we see an environment much like you see in say modern day Kosovo today and some other areas around the world where, um, you know, things are stable enough and then you can turn towards actually taking the next step and, and get, having more complex development, not just getting water to people, but then also looking at, you know, programs like food safety. And so you're able to, to, to mature that development process once things have stabilized and there's a functioning police force and there's a functioning, you know, or at least um, operating healthcare system and these types of programs. So there's an access piece from a security perspective. And then I guess also when you're talking about larger scale countries that are remote, like Afghanistan, there's an access piece physically. So physically being able to go to some of these mountainous regions and yeah, that, that's a challenge even for the military. So there's no good, easy answers for that one. But I, I can definitely see it being a problem. Um, and that's why we focus on this kind of post-conflict plus 10-year type of time frame. Yeah, I mean, it has to be uh, one of those things you consider before you decide to take out a project of, of how, your personal safety, obviously, but the safety for the community, their, their community as well, and understanding what they're kind of kind of going through, right? Well, definitely. And so it comes back down to the, the immediate security needs. And so once things have stabilized and, you know, daily life is sort of returning, if I can use that as an example, that's a rather broad description, but let's say daily life is returning and people are able to put food on the table and they're able to have a job and they're able to start, um, you know, sending their kids to school and things are functioning as a normal society, then you can you know, that security, that immediate security need is fulfilled, then you can start building upon that and then maturing that community uh, over time. You know, what I find interesting is um, uh, I've been through a few areas that were post-conflict and, and they're still, I mean, 
this is what 15 years ago post-conflict and there's still like you know leftover tanks that were destroyed in the middle of the fields and things like this um you know and i always when i was walking through there i'm like wow this is kind of interesting that this becomes white noise for people you know where we walk in we go, oh there's a destroyed tank and it's kind of interesting they just see it as white noise how do you go about and say hey this area over here needs to be cleaned up and it's you know it's, number one there's a hazard number two you know aesthetically doesn't you know probably doesn't look that great for people who, who live in the community to, to, to see just this destruction. You know, how, how do you communicate that to somebody? Well, one of the ways that we do that is we, you know, I, I was fortunate to work with a, a pretty good team in Kosovo that was uh, working on the mine action program uh, and with the mine action center in Kosovo. And so they, you know, fortunately or rather unfortunately, I guess, however you want to look at that. But, you know, when a conflict has occurred, the, the UN has a rather robust system for mine action. And so going through and cleaning up munitions and, um, you know, doing the explosive ordnance disposal, that all comes out as a result of a lot of the UN's work and what they're doing in, in these types of societies. So there's a natural um, evolution of that, that where the international organizations come in and they assess, they assist the, the host nation to, to clear out the munitions, to build their own capacity, their own organizations to take on that and build their own capacity to do that. Now, moving from that kind of conflict perspective, and then you start talking about things like, um, which is more in the kind of the EM field, um, let's look at like radio, radiological waste, um, biohazard waste, chemical waste. Where does that go? Uh, and, and what happens with that? And then, you know, from our spec perspective as, the, you know, from the EM community, then you start to look at these things with a more critical eye. And it becomes increasingly interesting in these environments. Um, a colleague of mine uh, works in the field of stability policing. So the field of, you know, um, the security situation is, is dissolved so much that you have to implement some type of police capability. And in these types of environments, they find that environmental waste is a huge opportunity for organized crime. And so you start to get into these issues, which are, are highly unique for these environments. And then where do you take all of these types of hazardous waste products? How do you dispose of them? What are the proper uh, procedures to do that? And then what is a simply just the next step? I mean, if they're out in the open today, how can you just get them into a warehouse or a facility? And how can you transport them? And so there's a lot of things that, that are, are done on the, the conflict side by the international organizations. But then when you start looking a bit broader spectrum into the AEM field and, 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 and you start looking at all these different areas, you start to see that nobody's really touching these things and, and as far as developing more as a society, if that makes sense. So the munitions piece I'm less worried about because there's mechanisms for that. But when you start talking about you know, environmental waste products and everything, and then there has to be a more robust presence, and especially from an EM perspective of how to deal with that. That's pretty interesting stuff. Okay, let's move a little bit on the topic here. So one of the things that you guys do specifically, we kind of highlighted a little bit, um, was is the education piece. And uh, you and I have been talking about, about that a little bit online. Um, how, how do you get involved? Like if a student wants to come over or a school wants to be involved with you, how do they get their students over there to learn about using emergency management in the uh, post-conflict areas? 
Well, so one of the ways is, is that we have modeled our programs and, and what we're currently developing um, against just a traditional study abroad program. Uh, and so we want to be uh, conducive to any academic partners that want to enhance their portfolio for their students. And so what we want to provide is we want to provide this, this operational environment for students to be able to learn about how EM applies in operations in post-conflict societies. And then for the academic partner, we, we fit that in such a structure of a semester-based program to where they are able to fit it within their own um, type of systems and structures and requirements. And so we either partner directly with the academic institution and build an in-house program, or we also have other academic partners that we can channel that through. Uh, simply just to get in touch with us um, and um, via our website is completely fine to, to reach out and find more information. But what I think is one of the key issues is to make sure, because EM is such a, a U.S.-focused you know, degree program that we want to make sure that what we're doing is, is conducive to what they're learning in that degree program. And so there's a lot of things that we can discuss and, and show students about the different organizations from Defense Threat Reduction Agency to, to NATO and others. And one of the ways that, that we do that is by having the student come over and, and basically be immersed in that environment for a semester. What kind of students do you guys uh, do you guys get? We've been typically focused on. Uh, we have a couple of different unique programs. What we've typically been focused on is building out an, an ROTC focused cadet program, um, and we were doing this one directly. Uh, this because it was a natural evolution for us to in this type of environment. And so we were looking at ROTC cadets and trying to get them quote, deployed before they actually go on deploy, because we know a few different things. I had the pleasure of working two th with 2,500 officers across eight years and from 14 different nations. And it was a, a great cultural experience to work with that many people and to, to see how the different dynamics come into play. So we, and I realize that we're not going to change the DOD institution. It's a, you know, it's a huge institution. That's not going to change. But what if we could build in a program where students who are ROTC cadets that are going to be commissioned into the military would have the opportunity to quote unquote deploy and spend a bit of time with us, a semester abroad with us in the field, so to speak, and then having a discussion with these international organizations uh, about what it takes to actually function culturally um, and, and in these type of environments with these different institutions and how do we all work together to make that happen and how do you work with your host nation partners because we have accepted and we have seen the future is always going to be with the military it's going to be by with and through partners you know that's not going to go away anytime soon because of that and drawing out from that we started looking at emergency management because of my experience in that field in post-conflict operations and knowing that there are very few, if any, programs that appeal to a student that want to work in, that, that looks internationally at emergency management and how those type of mechanisms work, either from major international disaster response mechanisms or to really rebuilding society post-conflict. It's such a defined specific area, but it provides tremendous value. And so we've, to answer your question, we specifically were looking at students that could directly benefit from that time being abroad 
And that, that's where we fell to the ROTC cadets initially. And now we've recently expanded broader into the EM field. So I have a fair amount of students that listen to this program. And if you're talking directly to the student, why should they get involved in a program, if not yours, but something like yours? Well, that's a great question. I think that one of the reasons to get involved, and this has been my experience, um, and, and of course, you know, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. But from my experience, we go through our career paths as, as EM practitioners, and, and we're going through all these great things because it's the environment that we, quote unquote, grew up in, in the United States. You build a, a, a great level of technical expertise. And you're able to go through and, and, and you're very good within the U.S. system. The real challenge, I believe, is going internationally and then being able to see what happens when that's not there, when FEMA is not there. What is the equivalent in another country? And then what do you do when these mechanisms don't exist? So if insurance doesn't exist or if, um, you know, if there's no federal level, that doesn't exist? What if it's only local at a municipal level and then state level, right? And so in the context of understanding the complexities of emergency management, I think it's of tremendous value, and it has been for me, to go to an environment where those things don't exist so that because when they are not there, then you can see what, uh, what other people have developed to take their place. So alternatives, solutions, perspectives. And then that is a tremendous learning value from my perspective. I agree with you 100%. I think that's a, uh, an amazing opportunity if you can take it and, and to, to go international and, and to see some of the serious challenges <clears throat> that are faced. And you can come back wherever you go and, and use those, those skills and lessons learned and the connections that you learn from, from the type of things like this to enhance your, your career, number one, and also to enhance the uh, – your ability to do your job to the residents and citizens that you're serving uh, or constituents or, or stakeholders, whatever you want to add in there uh, to uh, the, the here in the United States or Canada or, or, or Australia, for instance, uh, in the developed countries. That's awesome. Uh, before we let you go, um, a couple more questions. One is how could somebody get in touch? With you? How, how do they find you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so if anybody wants to get in touch with us, um, first of all, I'm, I'm personally on LinkedIn. Just look for Kyle King at, at Capacity Building International, and, and I'm there. Uh, I love LinkedIn. I think it's a great tool. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we have a website, just capacitybuildingint.com, or just Google Capacity Building International, and uh, that'll come up on the first page. It should be there. And then uh, more than happy to get in touch with anybody that's, that's curious about what we're doing, or alternatively, if we can help anybody do anything. Uh, and so you know, professional networks are great. We're more than happy to help if anybody needs uh, some of our assistance. All right, Kyle, toughest question of the day. What book, books, or publication do you recommend to somebody in the emergency management field? Well, naturally, EM Weekly, right? <laughs> um, actually, I, I just finished a book, um, which I, I think is important for, for many different reasons, but um, so I finished a book called The Culture Code, which is by uh, Daniel Coyle. And that, that was important for me, I think, from my perspective, for what, what people need to extract or take from that is that building high-performance teams is often about culture. Um, 
and there's been tremendous emphasis on leadership and you know and and things like that with teams and organizations but at the end of the day building a a culture within your organization to be a high performance team is something that is is going to be tremendous value to to be able to get your things done professionally and and to be able to perform at such a high level and and really to be able to kind of that that trust and safety and security amongst your own uh, team members is going to be vitally important to building a, a good organization. So, and especially if we look in terms of our own communities, the own people that we're dealing with. Uh, so there are some pretty good nuggets of information there that I think that EM, uh, you know, emergency managers throughout, you know, the United States, we could look at that from the optics, not only of our own organizations, but also of, of our communities. That's a, I like that a lot, actually. That's cool. If you could speak to every single emergency manager in the world, what would you say to them right now? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, let me think about that for a second. Um, um, so from my perspective, um, and it's just been from my own personal experience. So the true measure of your expertise is to be able to whittle down all of your programs to the most functional, basic, core components. And so if you can have somebody who's, you know, 20 years and a technical expert and can tell you the inside and out of every single program. The real expert, in my opinion, is somebody that is able to go to a different society and assess what they're doing and say, listen, all you have to do is take this next step and you'll be much better than where you were. So not adding layers of complexity, but understanding the core components of what they're doing and be able to relay that. So if I'm talking to all emergency managers, I would basically say, be the technical expert, but at the same time, understand that the metric for being an international expert is being understand is, is being able to will down your programs to the, the, the core basic components and being able to communicate that. So it, it, it's a bit of a bell curve, right? And, and it's been my experience that the most successful people are the ones that have been able to do that. Well, Kyle, it's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. Um, excited about having you on the show and we should do this sometime again. No, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It's really good talking to you and I wish you all the best.